Welcome to the Trainer's Bullpen, where trainers in the law enforcement space come to hear experts talk about their work, experience, and research into human performance, particularly as it relates to the critical aspects of training motor learning and crisis decision-making. The purpose of the Trainer's Bullpen is to help bridge the gap between law enforcement training and the findings of academic research and current pedagogical best practice. Our desire at the Trainer's Bullpen is to help advance law enforcement training, make research applied, and improve officer and public safety. The Trainer's Bullpen is a production of Raptor Protection, and I'm Chris Butler, your host. Now, on to today's show. And it's my pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Rob Gray from Arizona State University. Originally from Toronto, Canada, Rob completed his BA in psychology at Queen's University and his MS and PhD in experimental psychology at York University. After receiving his PhD in 1998, he worked as a research scientist for the Nissan Motor Corporation in Cambridge, Massachusetts. In 2001, he was appointed as assistant professor in the newly formed applied psychology program at Arizona State University. In 2006, Rob was appointed the associate professor and program head. Since 2005, he has worked part-time as research psychologist for the United States Air Force. From January to June of 2010, he was appointed as visiting professor in sports science at the University of the Mediterranean in France. From 2010 to 2014, Rob was the associate professor in perception action in the School of Sport, Exercise and Rehabilitation at the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom. His research focuses on perceptual motor control with a particular emphasis on the demanding actions involved in driving, aviation and sport. His goal is to conduct basic research that can be applied towards the improvement of training, simulation, accident prevention and human machine interface development within these contexts. In 2007, Rob was awarded the Distinguished Scientific Award for Early Career Contribution to Psychology from the American Psychological Association. And the Earl Alusi Award, Rob, you will correct me if I pronounce that incorrectly. I think that's right. <laughs> or Early Career Achievement in the Field of Applied Experimental and Engineering Psychology. In 2015, Rob started the Perception and Action podcast. This podcast explores how psychological research can be applied to improving performance, accelerating skill acquisition, and designing new technologies in sport and other high-performance domains. It covers disciplines, including, including sports science, psychology, human systems engineering, sport analytics, human factors, neuroscience, and cognitive science. The podcast reviews basic concepts and discusses the latest research in these areas. It is targeted at academics, researchers, coaches, performance analysts, technology developers, and students working and studying in these areas. You can find the Perception Action podcast at perceptionaction.com. Dr. Gray is also the author of How We Learn to Move, A Revolution in the Way We Coach and Practice Sports Skills. How We Learn to Move examines exciting and alternative approaches to learning movement skills and its implications for practice design, coaching, keeping students engaged in sport, the prevention of injury, developing training technology, and using performance analytics. 
Well, welcome, Dr. Gray, to the Trainer's Bullpen. Thank you for taking the time oh, to join us today. You're my pleasure, Chris. Um, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I so appreciate appreciate about you, Rob, is, and as I've mentioned, I've been following your podcast and Perception Action for well over a year now. But I love the way that you take research papers and in studying different aspects of human performance and can break it down in a way that especially somebody like me and the average law enforcement officer that doesn't have a background in research, in uh, kinesiology, in these human performance domains, you really help us understand that. And so when I read this uh, paper that you're going to help us understand today, it's called There Must Be an Ideal Solution Assessing Training Methods of Knife Defense Performance of Police Recruits. Now, this is a study that Corner and uh, Stoller and Keck did, and it was published in Policing and International Journal of Police Strategies and Management in 2020. But one of the things that they looked at, and you're going to help us understand, was basically two different training approaches, a, a linear approach and a nonlinear approach. Mm -hmm. And they found some pretty important findings that I think have implications for law enforcement training. So Rob, that that's why I asked yeah. you to come and help us understand that. <laughs> yeah, no, my pleasure. Yes. Uh, sometimes these journal, like journal articles are really written for people that are working in that area. They're not written for a kind of outside audience. So um, yeah, I try, you know, I think yeah, best I can, I try to, uh, to break it down for people. Yeah, and thank you for doing that too, because that's so important. Because especially in in law enforcement, the interdisciplinary domains, uh, Rob, have such important. They've done such important work, and they have such important understanding that can really help advance law enforcement training. But again, it's so almost like it hits the glass ceiling because of the way it's written for academia. Mm -hmm. It doesn't penetrate down into the applied part of law enforcement training. So so thank you for doing that. Let's take a look at this this study, Rob. Mm -hmm. um, what what can what can you tell us about what were the researchers exploring? What were they examining and what were their research questions? Yeah, so they basically you know, I think their goal was to try to apply a methodology, a kind of this new that I wrote about in my book some that's kind of being applied in a lot of sports and other domains um, and it's kind of a different way of looking at skill acquisition um, to the, you know, defense kind of uh, police training. I mean, um, so seeing if you get kind of similar effects for how we, we see in sports and with athletes in, in this kind of uh, domain. And the, the main, so they're kind of really kind of contrasting with the very traditional approach to way you teach these kind of skills with this kind of what sometimes people call the ecological or nonlinear approach. Okay, fantastic. So and, and I, as we get into it, I'm really going to ask you to sort of uh, describe that mm -hmm. ecological or nonlinear uh, approach. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that the terms that we see used in this paper repeatedly is this is this word pedagogical. Mm -hmm. and and so, or or pedagogy, and that may be an unfamiliar term for most law enforcement trainers. So, Rob, what what is what do they mean by that? Yeah, basically, pe pedagogy is really just being used to talk about instruction or teaching. Um, 
you know, uh, people might get mad at me that are actually research in the area, but it's kind of using a hundred dollar word when a one dollar word would do, right? Um, it's it, yeah. How do you instruct people? So pe pedagogy re refers to instruction, and, and, and there's more to it than that. But for this purpose, they're the same, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, and so this paper, then they were looking at those two different instructional techniques: mm -hmm. the traditional, and you said traditional kind of mm -hmm. uh, linear. And mm -hmm. we'll we'll talk about that. Um, well, maybe right now is a good time to address that issue. So linear and nonlinear. Can you describe what each of those means, and then maybe help the listeners uh, by giving examples? even from a sports domain, from your experience, what would a linear versus a nonlinear environment look like? Yeah, so linear, the basic, the reason it's kind of use that term, so linear means like straight line. Like, so if I was explaining skill, I could put the parts on like a line where one, so like in, in, in defense, right, I perceive what the person is doing, the, the, um, I wanted, the, I, decide what I need to do to stop them, and then I execute the movement to, to stop them. So I they I perceive they're holding a knife. I decide I need to, they're, they're attacking me with a knife. I decide I need to block with my arm. I pull out of my memory the program for blocking, right? Um, so the idea that these things happen in order, one after another along a line. And the, the idea is that the way I get better, because of that, I can break them apart. Like, so I can take the the movement the technique of blocking and just work on that with no actual real opponent that's trying to attack me or or anything and i so i work on that over and over again and then when i put you back in the, then then next i will get you to work against an opponent and decide when to use that so like a sporting analogy um in soccer right i need you need to be able to if i want to get around an opponent with the ball dribble around them um, what I what I need to you to do first is to teach you how to ball handle the ball. So I'll have you dribble around a cone first, cones first, to make it easier. So there's no opponent there. You get really good. I'll have you re another kind of fundamental idea. Of this is re repetition, right? I'm going to get you to repeat this technique over and over and over till you get good at that. Then I'll put you in a game, and you'll just be able to pull that out. I see an opponent in front of me. I'll pull out the dribbling from my memory and get around them. Um, so it's kind of that, that's linear pedagogy. Um, Nonlinear pedagogy is really the, the idea that all these things are happening at the same time and you can't break them apart, right? So um, the I'm perceiving and acting and deciding all at the same time. So I can really only, I can't pull apart a skill, repeat it, break it, develop it, and then put it back in. Um, it, it has to stay in context, right? So teaching you the movement to block something, punch or a knife attack, when there's no actual opponent, that's you know, it is it can't just be put back in later on because it's it doesn't occur in the in a straight line like that. So that that's the basic idea: the nonlinear versus linear. Okay, so let me give you an example of a typical law enforcement training of, of say, defending against a, a knife attack or a punch is often what you will see, Rob, is you'll have the, all the students in a line and you'll have uh, other students who are playing the, the role of attacker and the instructor will direct that a, say, a right 
frost punch or a right roundhouse punch is going to mm -hmm. come and it will come and the students have been taught this is the block this is the mm -hmm. wrap this is the this and it's it's broken down like that so it's very scripted and typically mm -hmm. very technique based where they're told you know you want the outside of your forearms to block your hands are open your fingers are splayed and some will even get it detailed about the angle of the the elbow what it should mm -hmm. look like and all that so even though there's an opponent a so-called mm -hmm. opponent is that still closer to linear or is it non-linear yeah the that's very close to linear you know that the idea, another essential idea in linear, and that, that's where this title of the paper comes from here, right? There must be an ideal solution is that there's a one correct way to block, right? That I'm going to teach you. Um, so, and I'm going to get you to, I'm going to tell you all the mechanics of it, like keep your arms up, do this, with, and you're going to repeat it over and over. That's the way we become skillful, right? In the nonlinear view, it's really, there's no one correct way to do it. Um, the way to do it depends on the individual, but also, right, there's no one punch, right? The punch can be high, low, and what about if the person kicks, right? I have to be able, you know, um, also, like, I, I get punched at from different distances when, I, when my body's different in position. So nonlinear argues there's not one correct way to actually do a particular skill. Uh, skill is about picking up information in the moment and adapting your movement to it. Okay. Yeah. And I wonder too, you know, as I often reflect on how many years I, I've spent doing linear training <laughs> in the law enforcement realm is, you know, when you think about an officer on the street that's confronted by a sudden spontaneous attack at close range, mm -hmm. um, we, we wouldn't want that officer waiting until the threat is so fully developed that before they start to act, like ideally we would want them to have great game intelligence where they can read those early cues, mm -hmm. those biomechanics and learn to start taking action well before that is developed. So do you think that linear training, like I've described, can it actually impair performance by what we, we call training scars in law enforcement is through repetition, repetition in a linear world, we, heaviize this 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 conditioned response where the, mm. the performance is actually not the optimal of what we would want on the street yeah um yeah i think so i think this overly focus on the technique and the repetition of the perfect technique what you often find is when you put the person in the actual situation they they don't know when to use it right they don't know how to adjust it like, what do I do when the person's left-handed, right? And the punch is coming from a different angle. You you don't, you, you kind of lose, you can't just plug it in like that. And, you know, go back to my soccer example. Like you see tons of kids that are incredibly gifted at like doing these technical things on the side of the field, keeping the ball up in the air. And then you put them in the game and they, they're terrible. They don't know when to pass, shoot, drive by their opponent because they've never there's so little decision-making like that's another kind of big problem with linear tip training is there's so little decision-making involved, right? What you described in your activity, you're telling the athlete, you're telling the person, this person's going to punch and you have to block. There's no decision on their part about what to do. And then you get them in a com complex environment where they don't know what can happen. Then they, 
they make the wrong decision and we wonder why right because <laughs> we didn't give any practice at, at that yeah yeah so right. it's, i guess it's it's not so much that it can hurt it can, it can in some sense but it's the idea that it's really not the most efficient use of kind of practice time right we're we're spending so much time worrying about the technical when we're not you know teaching the other parts of it yeah okay great so let's look at the study design rob why don't you walk us through that uh what how did they carry out the study i know you before we started hit the record button you began to tell me a bit about some of yeah. the methodology that maybe could have been a little a little bit better but why don't you tell us about the study design and yeah so i think this was a study that happened it was in germany and they took um police recruits i think they in, in the end they ended up with 20 um, and they put them into, um, uh, split them into two kind of training groups. And they did kind of the standard thing we do in research called a, you know, pre-post design. So we're going to measure, assess you on a bunch of abilities before training, train you for a while, then assess you on the same abilities afterwards to see if there's any change. So the pre, that the pre-test is that happens before the post-test happens after. And um, what they did in the study was they the, the tests were they um, had people um, blocking knife, different knife attacks, right? Different kind of, um, so they had ones, inter- it was interesting, they had ones both where they told the person what was going to happen, <laughs> like this person's, I can't remember what exactly they're going to thrust at you, um, and they measured how often the person got hit, how quickly they blocked. Um, but like one of the key conditions they had though in the study that I really liked is they had a surprise attack, right? Where the the the, re- the police recruit didn't know what the attack was going to be, and that's important because that's where you expect the non-linear approach to really shine, right? The non-linear approach is going to make you adaptable and adjustable to things you not trained for, because and so that's where we would expect the bigger biggest difference, right? So yeah, so that's the, basically what they did. They uh, um, and then they had three weeks of training. Um, the uh, I think the linear group was like you said the very um, the 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 other kind of one of the other differences between the two is in in linear pet teaching methods, right? The idea is the instructor knows all the answers, right? I'm as a recruit, I'm coming to you because you're going to tell me exactly how to do it, right? That's why I call you. You're going to instruct me in the correct way. And so in the linear group in the, in the study, that's exactly what they did, right? They told them, um, you know, uh, gave them like cues about what their body should be doing. I'm trying to, I had an example here, you know, um, they're, they're, they're giving them like specific instructions about how to do different types of blocks, you know, um, doing these different kind of things, uh, like so. For for an, for example, one of their cues was for inside defense: bend the elbow at an angle between ninety and one hundred and twenty degrees and rotate the hip. Right. So they're giving a very the 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 instructor is giving the solution to the, the the recruit. You know, here's what you do, and when this happens, right. Um, so that that was the the linear group. In a nonlinear, nonlinear, the other ways we kind of change the way how we think of the the coach as more of a designer and guide. So the the fundamental assumption is the coach doesn't know 
exactly the best way to do it, right? Because um, it's going to depend on the situation, the individual. So what I'm going to do is just, I'm going to create practice for you to figure out how to do it on your own, right? So in this study, what they did was they, um, instead of doing lots of um, instruction and isolated repeats of these movements, right, they, they had, um, they call it, uh, what do they call it? Dynamic chaos. So they were constantly um, sparring with other people. Um, and then, you know, different attacks um, from different positions. They were kind of varying things. So they really did not do any, as far as I can tell, they just told them, don't get hit. Um, create distance from your opponent. They didn't tell them anything about how to stop in any of the attacks. So they didn't give them any explicit instructions about how to move, right? And they just kind of let them explore through through things. And as I said, this is, so maybe I'll stop there and I'll let you kind of, if there's any kind of points. Yeah, no, I thank you. Yeah. So in that then, um, is that normal in like a non-linear training approach to not give any instruction at all? Or would you still want to, like you'd want your performers to know basic goals and principles, mm -hmm. maybe not the technique of how to get there, but like, what's the goal and principle uh, of being successful in this environment? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it is, it is on, yes, on the one hand, we don't really, in the, in the nonlinear approach, we don't really give any instructions at all about how to, we're not, we're giving you problems to solve, not solutions. We want you to figure out the solution. But at the same time, like, I, I think I were talking to you before we start recording. I don't think this is the best example of a nonlinear approach, because one of the things kind of confusions people have about this is that they think nonlinear just means letting you do it on your own with no kind of guidance. Like going back to my soccer example, okay, dribbling around the cones doesn't work. Okay, just let them play a whole bunch of games. Like, and, and I'm not gonna say anything at all. That's really not what the, the nonlinear approach is. Um, in particular, they mentioned this term called the constraints-led approach. The, a nonlinear approach, I, I'm what I'm going to do is keep the thing more realistic, like I'm going to have you sparring, but I'm going to add things to, to try to help guide you to more effective techniques, right? So, um, you know, uh, maybe, you know, if, if this was more of a martial arts, maybe I'm seeing as a coach, I'm seeing that you're always trying to grab the person's head to pull them down to the ground. Um, and that's not really working well, I'll add what I call a constraint. I'll say, okay, there's a rule, no grabbing over the head. Or I'll tell the, their opponent, all right, lean way back, right? So I'm I'm somehow, I'm like changing the structure of practice to kind of get you to try different things. So it's not just letting people do whatever they want. That That's kind of the, the misconception about this approach. As a coach, you're stepping in and you're saying, or you even might do it like, Okay, try getting closer to them or try try putting your left even a little bit of instruction. So usually there's more to it than this study, which was kind of just letting people fight with with some variation, right? Um, okay. yeah. yeah. You know, one of the things that I've seen really good trainers do in, in law enforcement, say when we're teaching balance displacement mm -hmm. takedowns, is they will educate the students about 
balance about the vestibular system and how balance works and how you disrupt balance, mm -hmm. but they won't give them any specific instructions about this is how you do it and how you do it. It's all yeah. now they have to self-organize based upon the context to apply those goals and principles. So yeah. would, would that type of approach still be consistent? Exactly. And you, a, a key term there, self-organized. So I want you to figure it out, but as a coach, I'm going to kind of push and, you know, pull, guide you, change the way the practice is designed. So, um, you know, uh, another, you know, if I want to flip someone over, that's kind of on the ground or something, um, I might have the person do a wide, be a wider stance, right? So you have to kind of do a different maneuver. So, yeah, so, yeah, that's exactly, I'm letting the athlete figure out these things on their own. But as a coach, I'm guiding, you know, in, in changing the practice to help kind of push, show them, okay, this is a, this is a good, might work, you know, help, right? Um, but, uh, you know, another, you know, kind of difference, and you, you see it in here is, um, Bruce Lee used to have this term he used keep making practice alive right what we're trying to do is keep that's where the term ecological comes from we want to keep you keep everything in context where you're actually barring against a resisting opponent right um, when you a lot of the kind of linear drills you hear you the one of the things I tell people is when you switch to using kind of nonlinear approach the sound in your gym will be totally different. <laughs> when people do blocking of repetitive kind of things they know are coming, it's kind of very, <laughs> right? Versus when they they don't know what their opponent's doing and the, all this unpredictability, everything gets louder. <laughs> it's more chaotic and, and people get more into it. So that's what I think he meant by being alive. Yeah. But, but yeah, so, so overall, I think, um, you know, it, it, I think it was a good basic first start of it, but I think I would have done some other different things in the nonlinear group to help guide them. You know, it's I that's a really, really misconception. I like to like it. We still need your knowledge as an instructor to know what is a good way to block a knife. It doesn't mean you can just do anything right. Uh, there's certain things that are not going to work and you we still want you as a coach to step in and okay let's help guide you a bit it's just we don't want you to tell tell exactly how to do it from the start yeah but it does it still requires really good skill from the coach yeah right yeah. good okay and so rob in, the, in this study the retention period i believe was was eight weeks so a yeah. uh, cu couple of questions on that can you help us understand like what? What? What is the importance of a re, of a retention period? Why do Why do researchers use that to look at mm -hmm. learning? And then is is eight weeks in your opinion? Is that a good retention period? Is there a standard retention period, or or what do you typically see? Yeah. So yeah. So the retention it is really important, I think, um, because you know I often see this in my own coaching. Um, you know, the term I use is you want these skills to be sticky right you want them to stay around like it's very easy in a practice environment well relatively easy <laughs> to get someone to move do a certain thing okay keep your hands up you know when you're fighting but when you they go away into the actual environment or a few weeks they go back to what they were doing before they drop their hands sorry i'm doing 
<laughs> demonstrations in the audio. Um, so it's very easy for things to disappear when people walk out of the practice. We see that all the time. Um, so retention is measuring, is it stick? Is it sticking? Is what we're doing uh, keeping that, the new, what they've learned around? And eight weeks, for actually for research, it doesn't sound like very long, but for research, it's actually quite good. A lot of them are like 24 hours. Um, so it, that's actually quite a long time in terms of research. It's just a, in doing research studies, there's kind of a practical thing. If you let people go away for too long, it's hard to get them back sometimes in your studies. So it's it's more a practical thing when they have short. But but so that is a pretty good length of time. I guess that's one of the advantages to doing research with law enforcement officers is <laughs> yes. If the boss tells them they're coming back after eight weeks, they're coming back after exactly eight exactly. Weeks. I had a similar one. Uh, I mean, doing uh, with pilot, yeah, we, we did one with the Air Force pilots. They were pretty, uh, <laughs> there wasn't much doubt of whether they were going to come back or not for your study. Yeah. So, Rob, with with motor learning, then, like, I, I've understood it to be, and you can correct me, but I've understood, like, the only real measure of whether motor learning has taken place is retention and transfer. So have they retained the skill post-training? And then does that skill transfer? Mm -hmm. And does does a, a so is that accurate? And B does transfer mean that from the training environment into a novel environment? Is that meaning that skill transfers from one to the other? Yeah, that's usually what we we mean by it. Uh, yeah, that that is typically because often you find is the things that work in the short term are not the best for the long term. And there's this classic kind of effect in motor learning where we talk about random versus blocked practice. When you block practice is when you practice the same skill over and over and over again. Um, like in basketball, if I do a whole bunch of free throws all over and over again, what you find is people will get really quick, really better quickly, right, at the shots. Versus random practice was where I get you shoot from the free throw line, then 10 feet, then 12 feet away, then 30 feet. And I'm randomizing the conditions. What you find is that people um, struggle with, with getting better there because there's so much variation going on and, and they have to adjust their shot and all the time. But then if you measure later on, the, the people that did the random practice are usually better at retention. And what they're particularly good at is if you make them take a shot from a distance that neither person did in practice, they're way better because they've learned how to adjust their shot for different distances. Whereas the one person, the other person, the block group, just didn't learn how to make free throws, right? So, um, so the conditions of what what happens while you're training don't always predict what's going to happen in the long run and what happens when we put you in other conditions, right? They actually had an interesting thing in this study <clears throat> that kind of goes along with this. They measured people's kind of perceived confidence, right? So they asked people, how well do you think you're doing? How well do you think you're learning the skill? And what you often find is people in the linear kind of repetitive blocked groups think they're doing better, right? Because they're making more shots. Whereas the people in the non-linear random they think oh man i'm really struggling i you know i I'm, i can't do that like um you know so and so they're not really good at assessing how well they're actually learning um and you know 
I always say, you know, like to learn, you have to fail a certain amount of time. That's when we learn. You have to make mistakes. And when we do that, we don't feel good. <laughs> we don't feel like we're doing well, but you actually are. We're doing way better than if you did. You're learning a lot more than if you were doing everything perfectly. Like when you do everything perfectly, you don't learn anything. You're just performing, not learning. Yeah. So yes, for sure. Retention and transfer, you know, that's really what we want. We want it to stick and we want it to work in other conditions. Okay, perfect. Thanks for clarifying that. Now, one of the 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 things that the authors state here, and it's on, on page four of the study, is they state that the main pedagogical problems for current law enforcement training, at least at, at the State Academy in Germany, mm -hmm. in which they studied, were two things. They said piecemeal and disjointed training, and simple mimicry or imitation of the trainers by the students. So, Rob, what's the concern? What's the problem with these two issues from a motor learning perspective? Why would learning be impaired when training looks like that? Yeah, so the first one, I definitely, you know, I think um, I agree with, you know, when you break it apart and, and piecemeal training, you get the problems like I mentioned before, you don't know how to actually use it, when to use it and how to adjust it um, when, you, when you focus on the isolated technique, um, you have those kind of problems. The, the imitation one is that's an interesting point. Um, de demonstration is actually a really good tool. Um, the only thing I think they could be referring to is like, if I'm getting you to do a block when you're not actually blocking a real serious punch, you might just get the kind of superficial aspects of it without actually, like if I if I told you to watch me swing a baseball bat and swing it like me without actually hitting a, a high speed pitch, you might just get the basic, you know, aesthetics of it without actually learning how to control the actual movement and adjust it. So I think that's what they're they're referring to there. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so um, on page six of the paper, they, the researchers discuss uh, nonlinear training methods. Mm -hmm. and they state that the important supporting premise for nonlinear training is that human behavior in the real world is nonlinear. And as soon as I read that, my mind went to your book that I've been mm -hmm. reading. And it's like we live in an ecological world that is completely nonlinear. So this is precisely the one of the areas of, of your expertise and research focus, Rob. So can you expand on the importance of this relationship between performance in the real world and how that should impact our training methodology? Yeah. So it really goes back to this kind of idea of the one correct movement. Now I'll give you an example that kind of fits with some of their discussion here, right? So what, what they're saying here is that a lot of people believe the problem with one of the real issues in training is that recruits are not getting enough reps to practice that technique. And the, one of the big researchers in this in the ecological approach is Nikolai Bernstein, who's a Russian physiologist. And he was hired by the, the, the Soviet Union of Labor to work with blacksmiths, right? And what, what they, they had some blacksmiths that were really not very good at like cutting metal and doing these different things. 
um, as an anthem that were great. And the assumption was the same one that I just discussed. The idea is the, the lesser scale ones hadn't learned to repeat the one hammering movement, the one correct way to do it. Um, they just need more reps. And what Bernstein did was actually measure the movements of skilled and non lesser skilled. And what he found was the expert one doesn't swing the hammer the same way every time. He has a little, he traced the movement and he shows they use slightly different angles, slightly different movements. And so the, one of the key ideas in the ecological approach is that the environment around you and inside you is always changing, right? So where, what direction I'm getting attacked from, the height of my the attacker, the um, whether I'm fatigued or not, well, there, there's ne it's never the same. So I can't have just one solution. I need lots of different solutions to 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 effectively defend myself. So I need there's not one way to do things. I need to be able to vary my movements in an appropriate way. That's okay. really kind of the fundamental idea. Yeah. All right. So yeah. can I unpack that a little bit more? Or ask yeah. ask you to. So in in the example that you gave them with the with the blacksmith. So they're able. So the repetition, the success in repetition is the success in being able to replicate a successful outcome every time. Mm -hmm. But the, the the way they got there was not through the repetition of the same technique exactly. every time. Exactly, yeah. Um, so when, the expression, repetition without repetition. <laughs> repeating okay. the outcome without repeating the movement that got you there, yeah. Okay, it, yeah. It, that that's really interesting because as, as a firearms instructor, one of the things that we, we do uh, a lot is we focus on precise biomechanics of a draw stroke. So the elbow needs to go like this. The, the grip needs to look like that. The angle of the wrist needs to look like this. And we go through a lot of pains to describe a biomechanical technique. Mm -hmm. And we get the students to replicate that. But then what I, what I noticed is when we're on the static firearms range and they can do that, they, they take great pains to try to replicate exactly what the trainer told mm -hmm. them to do. But now as soon as we put them in drills, like ecologically re realistic mm -hmm. drills and even scenarios, we don't see that performance. Yeah. They're still <laughs> able, they're still able to get the gun out very quickly and efficiently. So they reach the same end state, mm -hmm. but the biomechanics is completely different mm -hmm. than what, we have tried to drill into them on, on the range. So, you know, maybe this is the wrong approach because, you know, if what, if what you're saying here is the self-importance of, of self-organization and organizing your own movement to be able to be successful, mm. then the officer should be able to get that gun out, whether they're standing still, whether they're running, whether they're falling backwards, whether they're on mm. the ground, they should still be able to get very quickly and efficiently to the same endpoint, correct? Yes, exactly. And the idea is you you cannot possibly teach them all the variants of all the but the correct movement for all those variants of like um, all you can do is help them learn to do it themselves, right? They're going to have to make the adjustment when I'm leaning. No, when I'm running, how do I adjust my movement pattern to take that into account, right? So. Uh, but we tend to focus on this, you know, one uh, ideal when I'm just standing still and everything's perfect. 
and then they get out in conditions and can't handle the, the variations. Yeah. Okay. And and Rob, what about the the uh, inherent uniqueness of every human being and how they move? Mm -hmm. Is does that have to be considered? Because how I draw my firearm in a certain way, and my movement patterns, my biomechanics may not be anywhere near the same as the next student and the next student, they all may move slightly differently just because of the incredible milieu of, of being yeah. different people. Yeah. So, 100%. yeah, yeah, for sure. You have different, you know, grip strength, different arm length, you know, different, all of those things are going to affect. And, you know, the idea, you know, the idea, you know, that there's only one way to do it, you know, even at elite level, like, for example, you could take, like in tennis, I could take Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer, and I could just show you their shadows, and you could tell me which one is which, right? They have a, a unique way they move. There's not just one way to be an elite tennis player, right? They, they've come up with a way that works for them based on their own. Sometimes we call these individual constraints, right? Your, your own body dimensions, your own capacities, and so on. So yeah, we need to kind of take those into account and move away from the idea there's one size fits all kind of technique. Yeah. Okay. And so in in the constraints led approach to training, then when you use the the phrase the uh, the performer constraint, so would that mm. be one of those aspects of of recognizing that each performer has different characteristics exactly yeah we got to kind of let them find what works for them yeah there's certain obviously there's this is again not you can't do just anything you know, there's certain you need to get the gun out in a way that's you know under control you know you know so there's certain requirements we have to meet still but there's uh, different ways we can within that yeah okay yeah. so so we we started to mention uh constraints led approach or cla uh -huh. And uh, as you know, the researchers spend a lot of ink in this study talking mm -hmm. about the constraints-led approach. So I would uh, assume that mm -hmm. most of uh, the officers who are going to watch this interview, this will be new terminology for them. Mm -hmm. So help us understand, Rob, This th what is a constraints-led approach? And I, I think it's sort of a new could we call it a revolution in training? I don't, I don't know if it's like the concept yeah. isn't new, but the mm. application of it might be. I think so. Yeah. You know, I think it, it, it's people have been using the basic ideas for a long time, right? Um, it's just kind of putting it all together and under a theory. Yeah. The idea is, of, is with the reason the constraint is a weird name, right? Yeah. You constrain someone. So they, they, they get better. Sounds weird, <laughs> right? It sounds like I'm limiting you. Um, the idea is that, you know, um, when I, so in any situation, right? So imagine if someone was punching me to defend myself, I have lots of different options. Like I could block with my left hand, right hand, I could step back out of the way, duck, right? So I have all these alternatives. And sometimes for a new learner, it can be hard to know, what do I do? Which one do I use? If I'm going to block, do I just use my arm straight or do I bend my wrists? Like, there's so many options with the human body. A constraint is something that takes away some of those options, right? It, it takes away some of their options. to, And this not only helps the person kind of figure out what to do, as an instructor, it can, it can, you can get some push someone to try something different, right? So 
say I was always like always um, jumping out of the way, trying to move out of the way of a punch, right? Um, as an instructor, I can add the constraint of a smaller area we're fighting in. So I've constrained, I've taken away that solution of backing up because I want you to learn how to block, right? Or I can constrain by you know saying you're only allowed to use your right hand, or I can put in a, a piece of something on the floor you have to step over. So a constraint, the constraints that approach is what can I add to practice to kind of take away what the perform what the person's doing now and make them try something else? So I'm taking away what some sort of aspect of their movement and getting them to to try to explore another solution. That's why we call it that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So examples of that. So there's 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 three aspects in the in the CLA, right? There's mm -hmm. three things that the coach or the trainer can modify. Mm -hmm. You could modify the performer. You can modify the task and you can modify the environment, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Those are the three aspects. So in as as a trainer, then as I think about whatever skill I'm teaching my officers, and you gave a great example of maybe I'm going to inhibit one limb. So now they only have one mm -hmm. arm. That's that's changing the performer constraint, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The kind of the uh, what the individual can do. The the you or sometimes we could consider that task, you know, now you have to block with just one arm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, you know, in the, like an example of the environment, when I use them, like I work a lot in baseball. So I get, you know, sometimes baseball pitchers will land on the, when they land on the front foot, they kind of roll a bit, which I don't want them to do. So what I'll do is I put them in sand, like a sandbox. And when they land now, they almost fall over. So the, I've changed the environment to try to stop, discourage that movement. And, and But critically, in the constraints that approach, I'm not telling you what to do instead, right? If I take away your left arm, I'm not telling you how to block with your right. You got to figure, you got to self-organize and figure that out on your own. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And and other things that would be easy to do. I'm So the goal is like with the CLA approach is to make it as, as, ecologically rich as possible right like yeah. so you know we in law enforcement we can change the lighting for example if we're doing uh combatives in a in a training yeah. Yeah. environment we could dim the lighting to constrain the mm -hmm. vision we could even make it pitch black because officers have to function mm -hmm. in low light and no light conditions we could replicate a a freeway where they're getting in a ground fight beside a car but now they can't go into yeah. oncoming lanes they've yeah, got to they, go left yeah yeah they can't they've got to constrain fix the mm -hmm. problem in this very constrained mm -hmm. space um what about changing the physiology of the performer and what i mean by that is can would it be appropriate to say push them physiologically maybe with some type of a high intensity drill to get heart rate and physiology up and then put them so for sure. Yeah. Well, that's one of my favorite things to do, like get you fatigued in some way, you know, running laps or bent, doing some weight exercise. Now fight because like, you now you have to adapt to this new, you know, you're 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 tired and you're <laughs> you can't move as quickly, maybe, you know. So, yeah, for sure. That's another it's not one we do enough. I don't think I think it's it's a it's a good tool. Mm -hmm. Well, this is an area that I'd like, if you know, when we when we do an, another 
interview, I would like us to just focus on the constraints led approach and, mm-hmm. and really dig into that. So our trainers can understand what, what that is and how they can, can apply sure. it in mm-hmm. the training environment. So uh, next thing I want to ask you about, they talked about something I found very interesting. And this is that they said the linear, the linear approach resulted in an internal focus of attention, mm-hmm. whereas the nonlinear training approach resulted in an external focus of attention. So a uh, bunch of questions there, Rob. Why <laughs> why do we care about internal versus external focus of attention? What's the relationship between that and learning? Help, help us understand yeah. that. So uh, internal focus of attention means basically I'm focusing on my body during the execution of my movement. Like, so when they say bend your elbow at 90 degrees, that's creating an internal focus. I'm focusing on what my elbow is doing. Um, an external focus is focusing more on the environment, what effect my movement is having on the environment. So hit the bag hard is an external cue. You're focusing on the punching bag. Um, don't let the opponent get close is external. And there is a very long, actually, almost 25 years of research now is one of the most kind of consistent findings in motor learning that you learn better when you you focus externally kind of when you focus too much on your body you know that that's one of the things that we think happens when people fail under pressure right when you get under pressure you start worrying about oh, am i feet the right width apart and that's you don't want to do that you want to just let your body kind of go on its own you want to focus on what's happening out there and let your body sort out the details of how to do it. So, yeah. So in general, they're, you know, getting people to focus on them and, and you can think in linear, that's what we do all the time. Cause we're talking about technique. We're talking about all about what your body is doing. Um, and so we're really getting person to focus internally. Um, and as I said, in general, that's not good for, for performance and learning. Mm-hmm. This is one of the the aspects of firearms training that you will you will see is especially when we're first getting the students to learn the draw stroke, learn how to shoot the gun is getting we get their attention to think about so what that feels like in your hand, where your hand is on the weapon, think about where your finger is on the trigger and the and, and the pressure on the trigger and it's very in, internally focused. Mm-hmm. Is there a place when you're first learning a new skill? Is there a place at all for an internal focus of attention? And when, when, if there is, when should we shift from internal to external? Yeah, you'll get you'll get a little bit of differing opinion on this. Um, in general, I think it's much as possible you want to do externally. You want to get the person focusing at word, and even when they're first starting. Um, and we could talk about this more, like you said, when we'll, we'll get into the details of constraints. One great way to do that is to try to give them a na- an analogy for how you want them to move. So instead of saying, I want you to bend your elbow 90 degrees and do this, you can say, I want you to move like you're cracking a whip, right? So you get the movement pattern. In basketball, we talk about, I want you, imagine getting a cookie out of the cookie jar on top of the fridge. So instead of saying, extend your arm and snap your wrist, I'm using an analogy. I'm not getting you to think about your body at all. 
So there are ways that we can, with even with the novice appointment, kind of move away from these okay. bodily focus cues. But yeah, in general, I think it's a good idea as much as we can to get people not thinking about what their body's doing too much. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll be excited to talk with you yeah. more about that. Um, so we're we're coming up to the the end of our mm. our time here. So Rob, let's talk about the results of the study. Mm -hmm. uh, why don't you tell us what did what did the researchers dis discover? What were the important outcomes from their research? Yeah. So what they did was they looked, as I said, they looked at the success rate after training, right in, in those tests, um, and what they found were the um, the um, there was kind of the, compared to the linear group, the nonlinear group in the post test got hit less. They reacted faster, um, and the, as kind of I would have predicted even before I say, in particular in the surprise attack, they did way way better than the linear group. Um, they they have a nice figure here, you know, looking at they they kind of got hit, you know, on at you know. Hit um, significantly less um, both after training and the retention one. So, so they showed clear benefits in terms of these these tests. You know, you could question whether these tests are really true measure of what happens in the field, but um, you know, but I think there's a, they're showing these clear benefits, and this kind of mirrors a lot of the studies we've seen in sports of the same kind of thing. You know. Um, it help you know people show greater improvements in when you use this more nonlinear approach, particularly like so their surprise attack is almost like a transfer kind of like you know it's it's a, a, a condition condition you didn't really prepare for, and that's when people really shine right. Um, the one I, I work with, for example, in in like team sports, I work with the volleyball some volleyball coaches, and. They say, you know, they use kind of this nonlinear approach and they say where you really see it, even when they're playing against a much better team in terms of talent and size, whenever the play breaks down and the ball is kind of going everywhere, they win every one of those points because they're more adaptable. They're not looking for the one solution. There is no solution to that. They have to solve it on the fly. So that's kind of what they saw. So they, they see these clear benefits at retention um, for for the and right after training and that reten the retention period for this nonlinear approach. So I love the example you gave uh, <laughs> of the sporting event because for a law enforcement officer on the street, and I like to say every encounter they have is a novel encounter because mm -hmm. nothing will be exactly. We cannot replicate in training mm -hmm. with any precision every in any encounter that they're going to have on the street so to use your analogy the ball's always going everywhere yeah and that's kind of the like you know one of the things we challenge like even if you knew as an instructor what the correct way was to block or do this think of how many variants you would have to get oh you need one when the light level's low you need one when you're by highway you need right you can't possibly give a person all those they have to be able to figure those out on their own right on the fly like you said yeah and and figuring that out is what we see in this research paper and consistent with your mm. research and experience is that the ecological nonlinear approach to training results in better problem solvers in yeah. novel environments. Yeah, that's a great term, Chris. I think I like because because what you're doing on the linear approach is giving people solutions. 
the nonlinear approach is giving people problems, right? So you're 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 not, you know so that's it's not surprising they're better problem solvers. You're giving them more to solve in training. Yeah, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, Rob, I think our our time is up. I so appreciate you. But is there anything else that you wanted to say about this study or? to add before we finish? No, I think it's like a good, like I said, I, we, I think we, we t- before we went, we started recording, I think we were talking about how kind of ripe, I think, uh, kind of this police training is for this, at least like trying this approach, right? Maybe, you know, it's not the best one for some things, but um, it is a, you know, so I think this is a really good first step and kind of explaining the difference in that context and showing how it can be applied, even though I would do it slightly differently, but you know, you can always, you can always cribble about some things in every study for sure. Well, well, that's good, Rob. Maybe, uh, maybe this study has tweaked you to go, you know what, maybe I want to (laughs) do a research study. You've, you've got lots of, of willing law enforcement agencies Uh around (laughs) the University of Arizona (laughs) who would probably love to participate in, in a study. But uh, my friend, I want to thank you for, for your time. And I'm just, I would really want to encourage anybody who's watching this to take advantage of the Perception Action podcast. It's rich with information that you can glean out of all of these different aspects of human performance and look to apply them in your training environment. And I would also encourage you to pick up a copy of Dr. Gray's uh, book, How We Learn to Move. Uh, I've only gotten into the first or the second chapter of the book and, and not because it's a bad read, but to the contrary, I'm just making (laughs) so many notes and just having those moments of reflection going, Oh, I understand that and how I apply it. So thank you for both of those resources. Uh, Dr. Gray, appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. It was really like I said, I really love trying to take this in a new context. So I was really I'm glad you contacted me. Well, you're very welcome. And I look forward to our, our next opportunity to talk. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, sir. Okay, bye-bye.